I'm Carmen Lev Jenkins, Managing Editor of the International Journal of Stroke. The objective of this study, Patient Refusal of Thrombolytic Therapy for Suspected Acute Ischemic Stroke, published online in IJS, was to determine factors associated with patients refusing IV TPA for suspected acute ischemic stroke and then comparing outcomes of patients who refused TPA and those who were treated with TPA. I spoke to authors Dr. Farhan Vahidi and Dr. Sean Savitz from the University of Texas Medical School, Houston and UT Health about this novel paper and interesting findings. Why did patients refuse IVTPA before suspected ischemic, acute ischemic stroke? We investigated uh, and, and the reasons why it is patients sometimes don't receive TPA when they qualify for it. And that's a, that's a large question that many uh, groups um, in, in the world have been investigating. Um, so we uh, also looked at a, a difference potential reason, which was, is it possible that sometimes patients don't want to receive the drug or do they refuse it? And, you know, why? Um, and so you know, we, in terms of trying to understand the reasons why, um, we, in this retrospective study, first needed to quantify if this was a phenomenon that was occurring. And, and we do see that, you know, patients do, do refuse. Um, the, the larger question of why was a bit more difficult to be able to answer with a retrospective analysis. Uh, but we had some possible reasons that uh, we uh, speculated on with regards to the data that we had and, and drew some hypotheses around why it is they might refuse. Um, and so some of them might be that we had found that patients who tend to refuse have milder deficits. Um, and it's possible that they were refusing because they didn't feel that they were really sufficiently disabled uh, from the stroke that they were having or from the problem that they were having. Um, another reason may be that we had actually found out that a number of patients that refused didn't turn out to actually have a stroke, but actually have what we call a stroke mimic. So it's also possible that they may not have felt that they were even having a stroke uh, to begin with. Um, and Again, our, our retrospective approach didn't really allow us to be able to hone in on those specific uh, circumstances that would let us know why they had refused, but we suspected that these may be some of the reasons why. It also was possible that the position in evaluating the patients, particularly the ones that had uh, mild deficits, they themselves, we don't know whether they felt like they might benefit or not from the drug, and um, they may have met criteria 
uh, to receive IBTPA, but we don't know what was their attitude and their um, their pitch, so to speak, and how they pitched uh, uh, the potential benefits versus the risks of the drug when talking to the patients. It could be that the way it came across, the message that came across to the patients may have been uh, conveyed in a way that maybe the patients felt like the risk was not worth taking. As this was a retrospective study, how were the patients identified? Um, right. So um, I would take a lead from uh, what Dr. Savitz has already uh, been talking about. When we decided that we uh, are interested in this phenomenon and we want to study it more, we went back and forth in, in as to how to design it best and how to study it best. And, of course, the main question was between a prospective and a retrospective trial. We thought that um, the frequency of refusal is low enough that if we design a prospective design, it might take us a long time to study this phenomena. Now, given the strength that if we would have studied this prospectively, we could interview these patients in greater detail and find out what are their reasons as to why they do not want to uh, get this standard of care uh, treatment. So what we did was that we utilized our stroke registry uh, for retrospectively identifying these patients. And I would take a minute to just talk about our registry. Uh, it is a data storehouse on all the patients that uh, come to our service uh, at Texas Medical Center. Um, we, we are a huge uh, stroke treatment center, and there are literally thousands and thousands of patients in our stroke registry. So as an initial query, what we did, we went back into our registry. And we do, not, uh, we do capture a lot of variables on these uh, patients who come to us as a part of their uh, quality of care as a part of their standard of treatment, as a part of their outcomes in terms of the complications that they get and uh, their long-term 90-day outcomes as well. So we went back and looked at those patients who did not get TPA, and the reason that was cited in the registry was that either the patient or their primary caregiver refused, um, and they refused TPA. And then we made sure that these patients would qualify all other criteria based on AHA and FDA guidelines, um, but the only reason for them uh, should be that they refuse TPA uh, despite of being qualified for um, despite of being being qualified for every other every other criteria. Once we have that initial data, then uh, we took those patients and we went back into their medical charts and we kind of run through our data quality and um, and data cleaning processes and collected further data on, on them. Uh, but primarily, as Dr. Savitz mentioned, it was a retrospective design and the identification of patients was through our uh, UT stroke registry. And do you see any flaws in that or any inconsistencies in that collection of data? Did you feel that there would have been a different outcome if you had have approached patients directly, or is that hard to say? Um, we, our, we have, over a period of time, we have built uh, quality control into our registry. Uh, our data collection is actually done by trained medical abstractors. Uh, most of the times, these people have sufficient medical knowledge uh, to, uh, to extract all the variables in, in, a good, in a good quality control manner. We have uh, continuous monitoring, periodic checks, uh, quality, quality control on the data. So we go through the, all, those, all those processes periodically. So in, in, in terms of, uh, and, and we, we recognize that there are certain inherent biases in a retrospective design, but in terms of data quality, uh, we are pretty confident that the that, that, that data is of good quality. I think the only thing that we as an 
investigators also would like to know the question definitively is why were the patients refusing? And so we, being, being retrospective nature, we just do not have the uh, liberty of asking them this question directly and getting, an, getting a response to that. Uh, but I don't think that just by virtue of it being a retrospective nature, we have any data quality concerns. So what is the suspected reason and possible significance of patients who refused TPA and then had a reduced length of stay or stroke mimic? Well, I think the significance of, of the findings are that, um, are that you know, this is a phenomenon that has, you know, the, the, the issue of refusal uh, really has not been addressed before in the literature with regards to the, uh, giving IBTPA for a suspected acute ischemic stroke. So I think that uh, what we're hoping is that this kind of work will stimulate further research on this topic so that we have a better idea of its significance at a, at a uh, more at a higher level, at a national level or at, a, at more of a global level, um, what really is the significance of this phenomenon of refusal at other centers, um, at other stroke centers across the globe. I think this is what we're hoping uh, other centers will take up. And, you know, if it is a significant issue elsewhere, uh, then we hope that there will be some discussion around some guidelines about what are we to do when faced with this kind of situation. If a patient were to come in and there's concern that this is an acute ischemic stroke and they're meeting criteria for TPA, if the patient, if there's a discussion that's held with the patient or with the patient's legally authorized representative and they were to say, no, we don't wish to receive the drug, uh, what um, are the uh, actions that one could take after that? Um, and I think that it would be helpful to have some guidelines around that. I think it, this pertains even more so to the patient if the patient is really unable to provide uh, their own, let's say, informed consent around giving TPA, um, and um, what circumstances are there, if any, uh, that uh, should be considered to still uh, think about giving the drug um, under the circumstances that the patient is impaired uh, but is refusing uh, any kind of is refusing therapy. Um, and there's a whole literature, of course, on refusal of therapy. Uh, but we wonder whether this may need to be some discussion tailored to this specific issue overall. Um, so that, I think, is, a, is part of the significance to the work. But at the same time, I think there's also uh, some significance around the issue that it turned out that there was a much higher probability of refusal for those that had more mild deficits, that the probability for refusals was significantly going down the higher that with, the, with respect to the degree and severity of their deficits. We saw a much lower probability of refusal for patients that uh, had a higher degree of deficits or had more deficits from their stroke. So this, this does get into the issue, if, this, if our findings were to be validated and confirmed with other centers, that if refusal really is occurring much more in patients that actually turned out not to have a stroke, then the significance of that work I think is that people would need to reevaluate, I think, a little bit more, do they really have a stroke or not? <laughs> um, and I think that is another issue uh, to get into, which is what is the safety of TPA for patients with stroke mimics? And we have shown through uh, other publications and, and other centers have shown this that it's safe, for the most part, to, to give TPA to patients with acute suspected stroke that turn out actually to have a different condition ultimately. The refusal for TPA is decreasing. Um, why do you think that is? Well, yeah, we mentioned that um, 
because that's what our mathematical modeling suggested. And, you know, we did our multivariate analysis and we took time as one of the variables and it showed that over a period of seven years of our, our query, uh, seven years of investigative period, uh, the TPA, uh, the refusal to TPA has been decreasing. And, and, and we discussed kind of two, two faceted factors for it. There could be patient-related factors or there could be physician-related factors. Now, uh, what we discussed is that probably in terms of physicians um, and, and how this works, and we have explained a little bit of this in our methodology, that, that patients uh, are first point of contact, are ER uh, physicians. And then um, pretty soon, almost immediately, uh, one, of the stroke, uh, one, one of the stroke faculty or fellow uh, just kind of gets down to the ER and then they, they, they are responsible for care of these patients. So both the ER and the stroke physicians probably over a period of time as the data is unfolding in medical literature are more confident in treating patients with, with TPA. And what that can result is, is um, a different pitch, uh, being more aggressive, uh, being more assertive um, in, in explaining to the patient of what are the benefits of TPA. And it's safety in, as Dr. Savitz was mentioning, it's safety in milder strokes. It's safety in stroke mimics. So all of these different factors can play into the physician's approach to the patient and um, can influence uh, a patient's decision to whether to opt for or against a TPA treatment. So those are the kind of physician factors that we have discussed in our paper. The other factors that could be would be patient factors. And uh, there is literature out there that the awareness to stroke uh, the, the beneficial effects of uh, TPA, uh, the importance of time in, in administering the treatment after a stroke has been increasing in the general population over a period of time. So it's possible that these patients who are coming in are, uh, are already more uh, sensitive to uh, the necessity of this treatment over time and hence they are refusing less and less. You mentioned that uh, practice guidelines may need the addition of how to manage once a patient refuses TPA, would you recommend a targeted campaign to educate potential acute ischemic stroke patients of the benefits of IV TPA? Or do you think that it's, oh. as we discussed, practice-based? Oh, absolutely. No, I, I mean, I think that uh, really from a public health perspective, it's imperative, you know, to be able to spread the knowledge about the benefits of early revascularization in patients with acute suspected ischemic stroke. Um, and uh, there's been a lot of stroke awareness campaigns uh, that have obviously been implemented over the years uh, regarding educational messages about the benefits of TPA, and we need to have more. Um, and this topic on refusal, uh, I, do, I do think, serves at least in, at least in part some some provide some support um, around the need for more educational messages and, and more uh, campaigns uh, to promote the importance of recognizing stroke, the symptoms of stroke, and that there is an approved therapy uh, that can be beneficial if administered uh, within uh, an appropriate time frame. And what do you suggest that the guidelines would say additionally if people did refuse TPA? Well, I think that, you know, with regards to uh, this issue on re refusal, I think that the guidelines should consider um, how to handle situations in which 
you have approached the patient about the benefits of TPA and uh, the patient refuses, um, what should then be the course of action? Um, and so I think guidelines could be developed with regards to what further work, if any, uh, should be done. Um, whether you know that means that all efforts should be exhausted to find uh, a family member um, to discuss with them uh, that the patient has refused, um, as an example, or should there be more diagnostic studies that should be performed to really confirm that there really has been a stroke? Because again, we're saying there seems to be a higher incidence of stroke mimics in this population. Um, these, these kinds of things, I think, are what need to be discussed uh, that could be implemented in, in guidelines. And also whether there's any, there's any role to play uh, for you know, still administering TPA uh, without an informed consent. Um, it, it, it's something that at least should be uh, discussed, uh, not in terms of thinking about guidelines. That, you know, it is imperative uh, to create awareness campaigns, both on part of physicians and on part of patients as well. Um, and another, another important uh, factor that we found, another important statistic that we found is based on our data, uh, one in every uh, 23 treated patients uh, refuse. And so if we look at it that way, uh, it, though the uh, incidence is low and it's declining, it kind of remains a recurrent theme that we continue to see over a period of time. And hence, we, we do feel that it needs to be addressed at multiple levels both educational and awareness level and at policy level. All right, thank you very much for that, Farhan. You've been listening to an International Journal of Stroke interview with Dr. Farhan Vahidi and Dr. Sean Savitz from the University of Texas Medical School, Houston, and UT Health about the patient refusal of thrombolytic therapy for suspected acute ischemic stroke. I'm Carmen F. Jenkins, Managing Editor of the International Journal of Stroke. The International Journal of Stroke is the flagship publication of the World Stroke Organization. Please consider becoming a member.